Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and once again, I'm joined by Cam Maitland and Alicia Fletcher, and this is the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. Looking back at the movies from 1983, what would you think some of the biggest concerns were? Corporate greed, mother-daughter relationship tribulations, killer cars? Well, according to John Badham, director of movies like Saturday Night Fever, Short Circuit, and one of the movies we'll be discussing today, it was something else entirely. Possibly one of the most important issues of the 80s, if not the whole of, uh, the whole of history, dealing with nuclear technology. That's right, nuclear war. It's not something we really think of much today, or at least I don't. On the list of top five things I'm concerned about right now, it's maybe in the top 30. But in 1983, the threat of the Cold War coming to a boiling point with mutual annihilation was very real. But why was nuclear war such a hot-button issue, sorry about that, in 1983? Uh, Cam, let's talk nuclear warfare. What you say is absolutely correct. Uh, 1983, you can pretty much trace that that is the closest uh, we ever got currently to nuclear Armageddon. Outside of a few kind of random incidents, uh, things were getting more and more tense Obviously, the Cold War had been going on since the 60s. Uh, we're familiar with that. But uh, the uh, invasion of Afghanistan uh, was a huge uh, tipping point. Ronald Reagan's uh, essential choice to attempt to end the Cold War, I believe in his mind, was to make the United States so threatening that uh, the Soviet Union would back down. Real real Ronald Reagan cowboy stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, the the tension points, which we'll see in the films we're talking about, were uh, very specifically Germany, uh, East and West Germany. Uh, the United States had begun moving missiles into Germany, uh, which really uh, peeved the Soviet Union, as you may, you don't say. may imagine. <laughs> peeved. Um, uh, in 1983, Reagan uh, declared that the Soviets were an evil empire uh, to mm. antagonize them. Um, there was the largest fleet exercised held in the Pacific, featuring a whole lot of uh, things with nuclear weapons. It was bad enough that the whole world was kind of feeling it. The the paranoia was there. When Gen X people say they really feel dar- like we're afraid of Armageddon when they were teens, it's true because <laughs> they were very close. There was stuff like uh, Mr. Rogers came back, uh, came out of retirement uh, to do a series called Conflict. Uh, hmm. partially based on Granada, based on there was a suicide bombing in Lebanon. Uh, but he just felt that children were having to deal with so much of this tension from the Cold War that they needed Mr. Rogers back. So if Don't that, we need him now? Don't we need <laughs> yes. him now? If that yeah. gives you an idea of how bad it got, uh, Mr. Rogers came out of retirement. But yeah, specifically, there was a bunch of uh, nuclear films and, and they tended to be, uh, we'll talk about it a bit. They were 
all kind of fatalistic. They were about mm-hmm. how you can do everything right uh, and uh, things go wrong. Um, so there was a, a TV uh, movie called uh, Special Bulletin, which was a fake uh, broadcast of a news show uh, about uh, like a bit. Of the world. Uh, they tried very hard to be like, it's not happening, it's not happening, it's not happening. Uh, I think due to War of the Worlds. <laughs> not like, or, or Ghost Watch, which would yes, come later. Yeah, but, oh God. Yeah. Oh, I watched that. It's off topic. I watched that Scary. last week. Yeah, it's yeah, the done. nuclear, the ghost of nuclear threats. But this one uh, <laughs> involved uh, terrorists demanding nuclear disarmament, uh, and it ends with uh, Charleston, South Carolina being blown up. Uh, mm. There's a movie, Testament, which was created for uh, PBS. Uh, that is about people in the suburbs uh, slowly dying of radiation poisoning. Uh, and <laughs> it was meant for PBS, but actually due to a film we'll talk about, will uh, became a theatrical release because these stories were hitting so hard. And I think the kind of the most notable thing to say is in retrospect, we now know that uh, we got very close to a full-out nuclear war uh, with an exercise that was called Able Archer in 1983 uh, in November, where the United States was testing their DEFCON system, essentially, and moved to DEFCON 1, which would be, or it's 2 or 1, where they would be firing their missiles. Uh, And the Soviet Union probably reasonably was like, this would be the perfect way to hit us with missiles, to say it was a test. Uh, So they moved to Mm -hmm. their level of being ready to fire missiles uh and it took a lot of uh talking and yeah so there's all these things we know what we'll get into with another one of these movies is there was multiple computer mistakes which would say that either the soviets or the americans had fired missiles and it was up to thankfully very heroic people on both sides who (laughs) said i don't think this is real and (laughs) did not fire their missiles do not end the world please yeah exactly (laughs) Uh, so yeah, it's, uh, it was just a very intense time and you really see that coming out in uh, the films about nuclear war. Well, I think that's a perfect place to talk about our first film. And in 1983, the concept of cybersecurity, which is now omnipresent in our world, was basically science fiction if people Mm -hmm. thought about it at all. It was so much so a concept of fiction that after Ronald Reagan saw the film we're going to talk about today, he called up his, I guess, arsenal of advisors and asked them if something like this could actually happen. And they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, 100 percent, something like this could happen. In fact, I think they even said it would actually be much worse than what the film depicted. They like narrativized it in a way where people survive a little bit. And that, in fact, is inaccurate. We would all Exactly. And so they changed the law based on this film, which, to be fair, this film went out of its way to be accurate to how computers work and the different language and how hackers behave. Hackers, if you will. It also stars... Matthew Broderick in a proto uh, proto Ferris Bueller sort of role, Ali Sheedy before The Breakfast Club, and my favorite Muppet uh, cameo character actor, uh, Dabney Coleman. The movie is War Games, and it's uh, it's something really special. Alicia, you've got a relationship with this film. I did. I I mean, I did when I was studying at the uh, the George Eastman House, now the Eastman Museum. They did a really great screening of this on thirty five millimeter. I'd never heard of it, and it was part of sort of like a teen like a teen retrospective. And obviously this film stood out when you're watching other John Hughes films and you're watching Ferris Bueller. War Games felt very um, different in that, you know, it's it's a film about two teenagers who are quite brilliant um, and they're never, they're never treated 
they're never infantilized. Like they're never treated like they're idiots. They're never like treated like they're babies. Like the they are by characters in the film, but I think the director John Badham and who, uh, whoever wrote the screenplay really knew how to write like authentic, fully realized teenagers. It's it's really interesting. So it's a film that's um about a computer hacker, like a proto-computer hacker. And he's Ferris Bueller. Like, he's changing grades. Yeah. And, like, he's using it for, in, for yeah, innocent stuff. Yeah, so Ferris stuff. Bueller's 1986, so this is three years before. Um, and, oh, my God, Matthew Broderick's voice is so squeaky. It's like, it really <laughs> is very... When you're so used to Ferris Bueller and you watch this film, like, he just really seems like such a baby-faced, young, young, young person. Um, and he's very smart with computers. He has some very expensive home computer models in his bedroom, which is similar to Ferris Bueller, who has this, like, tricked-out bedroom of extremely expensive equipment. And he's able to hack into, like, his high school and change his grades. He meets Ali Sheedy, who's one of his... Um, classmates who's about to fail math and he helps change her grade but he also is kind of curious about this video game he's heard about that's going to come out soon and he tries to hack into a California company that has this new video game and in the process of doing that accidentally without realizing it at first basically hacks NORAD. He hacks a computer that's in charge of determining when to fire missiles on the Soviet Union and it's a list of games. It's called War Games because it's a list of games. And he sees like chess and checkers. And I don't think Mindbusters is on there. I think that's too early. But so, you get what I'm saying. <laughs> and then the like sixth game is like mutual toxicology and like mass destruction. Like things that are like, hmm. and he goes and he plays it and it ends up uh, triggering the alarms. And so the U.S. thinks they're at war. Uh, and he then has to kind of find the, the inventor of this computer system. It's a real thriller, and it's so effective. Uh, they had a lot of challenges on the, this production because, like, they had to trick out this war room, this, like, missile, you know, launch room, and they did so by, like, designing for the first time ever, like, a new way of showing computer screens, and because you couldn't really film computer screens very well, especially in, not in 1983, so they redesigned how to do that with animation. The set is for, was cost $4.5 million in 1983, which is a lot of money for a set, and uh, it really kind of changed how a lot of sets would come to look, you know, in terms of like this mm-hmm. kind of idea of a missile launch. It is a film that is very scary with its implications, but also has this incredible message where like basically two kids know more about what is proper about like diplomatic relations and international relations and mutually agreed upon destruction than like all the people like Dabney Coleman, who probably make $300,000 a year and are supposed <laughs> to know about this stuff. Well, I think part of it is also like 1983 is a big time for personal computers, mm-hmm. and they were fairly new uh, that it was uh, available. It's right after the video game crash uh, in 1983, so people started turning more and more to personal computers, but it was totally new. And I, actually, you see a lot of it in the films of 1983, uh, stuff like Vacation. Uh, has a computer sequence. Superman 3 is, of course, about uh, a computer uh, hacking with Richard Pryor. Uh, the Curse of the Pink Panther. Uh, my favorite, there's a Dutch movie called De Lift about an evil elevator. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> there's, yeah, so the, it, it's kind of a new thing where people are realizing. And, and like Alicia talked about, that there's you see the kind of hacking that w- was done a lot by young people uh, stuff like he does phone freaking, mm-hmm. which you can look up, which is a, a very kind of old form of hacking that was in like the seventies, even pre a lot of uh, accessible personal computers. 
which is very kind of fascinating. No, it's wild how accurate they got with the script. Like using the terminology is all is all accurate. The as you said, the techniques that actually would be used, which I think they changed a couple things just so that people didn't go home and try it themselves. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like it was one of those like responsibility things because I'm sure people would have done it. Um, that's all really fascinating to me. Uh, but I think the the concept of the message that's it's a about mutual disarmament is the only mm-hmm. answer mm-hmm. was something that a lot of people hadn't talked about yet. Like we had all these fear things, but it was like, well, well then what do we do? Mm-hmm. We just have to build bigger and better. But it's like, yeah, yeah, just stop. Like just stop and both of you de-escalate and we'll go from there. Because which is obviously the reverse of what the messaging was at the time was we have to mm-hmm. push forward and be strong. Yeah. And I think that there's also there's kind of a powerful message in uh, the character of uh, Dr. Falcon, who is uh, he's the one. So within the whole thing is, is there's Whopper, which is the computer that can do the missiles. But within Whopper, there's an artificial intelligence called Joshua, who this guy named after his child who died. Uh, and he's very much given up on life. He's he's off the grid because he gave up on the whole project when his family died uh, and just kind of saw that it was becoming this global nuclear war. Uh, but his whole thing is that he has he's moved to an island that is strategically located near a missile silo. So when a nuke hits, it will kill him. Fast. I, it's a it's an island off the coast of Oregon. And I'm from Oregon. And I'm just like. I don't think that's a thing. <laughs> like I have never. <laughs> oh, I, I'm sure. To be fair, I am sure uh, they, uh, yeah, are not saying where the real missiles are in their their dumped teen movie. Uh, but um, yeah. So his whole thing is very fatal. Like he just thinks the nuclear war is going to happen, and there's no point. That like what you should do is just put put yourself in a place where you'll suffer the least because he's Jeez. so certain it's going to happen. And and it's essentially a thing of him. Number one, kind of coming to terms again with Joshua, this computer program named after his dead son, but then also meeting these teenagers who convince him that they would like to yeah. live so much. <laughs> Weird, and eh? they have potential that it's it's his duty to stop this. That that you can't just like be depressed and lay back and and allow nuclear armor yeah, to happen. You can't invent something and then walk away from it and be surprised. Yes. And you owe used. Yeah, you owe essentially Gen X the the to try to save mm-hmm. them like it's it, it's not your fight anymore but you you owe it to all the young people to not just give in to this nuclear war the other interesting thing they do is there's presenting of a number of different sides and arguments mm-hmm. so you have the technologists you have the traditional generals you have the mm-hmm. children you have people who invented this who have now just been like this is going to happen you never actually see the president which i yeah. do mm-hmm. appreciate he's just communicating through all of these people the balance of this film really lies in the fact that it's not just like this dour nasty thing like when you dig into it cam as you said like it's like just roll over and accept defeat yeah what what really it comes down to is that it's a funny movie. And part of that is they got to improvise a lot. Mm. Like they were really encouraged to like play with the text. Uh, Matthew Broderick and Ali Sheedy were like, well, rewrite it and say what you would say as a kid. So that speaks to the authenticity of how the children speak. Is it how the children speak? Man, I'm a poet now. It's me. (laughs) Um, But uh, yeah, I think that all speaks to how great this film is. But earlier to your point, Cam, this is one of the first times that they were really shooting any sort of stuff with with computers and computers being the center. Computers are relatively inaccurate active as they are stationary. Mm-hmm. So the fact mm-hmm. that this film is as tense as it is using stationary computers is really impressive. I think a lot of it's the sound design. 
this film has really fantastic sound design around the computer effects. So as you would imagine, because there's countdowns and there's moving from DEFCOM five to four for three, like they do a really good job of making the technology, which is just a technology is just a tool of, of, of people but like they make it so threatening and they make it have a personality like you start to hear the different voices of the computers and that kinds of thing and i just think that's really well done yeah and i think i mean it's interesting that you say that the script is so improvised because it's also nominated for a screenwriting oscar which is pretty wild uh for a movie i I think that there it is weirdly kind of an adult movie starring teens rather Mm -hmm. than a teen movie but uh but yeah and i think that there's something to what you both say that it's Part of why it's made scary is everybody has good intentions. Uh, you, the mm-hmm. movie starts uh, with a training exercise where two people essentially fail it uh, because they are not willing to nuke the world. But even mm-hmm. before that, there's actually a bit where they come in and an alarm is just going off and the guy tells the other guy to just flick it and it stops going. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, Absolutely. the joke, too, when like the whole tourism group comes mm-hmm. into NORAD and they have the woman push the button and then he freaks out and he's like, no, 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 it's cool, it's cool. Yeah. And that there's that yeah. kind of a sense of humor about it, about this thing that is its annihilation oh, yeah. is just wild to me. I was totally reminded of Kubrick's, there's, there's elements of Dr. Strangelove. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I think it's the banality of it, right? Like, it's just that this is a person's regular job and that's mm-hmm. kind of the crazy part. They actually were doing their best to stay away from Dr. Strangelove because it does tread such similar sure. waters that I believe at one point they were going to have Barry Corbin in a wheelchair and then they were like, <laughs> oh, we can't do that because that's, that's Dr. Strangelove. Like, it's just, it's not going to happen. Kubrick yeah. ruining cinema for everybody, taking all the good <laughs> stuff. He's the Simpsons of cinema. He's sure. taking all the good yeah. stuff. I know when John Badham has talked about this film, you know, he did point out that like there was a screenplay and I believe there was a different director on this originally. And who got fired. And then he came in and all he really wanted to do is make sure that the kids were having fun. The kids being Ali Sheedy and and, and uh, I almost called him Ferris Bueller and uh, Matthew Broderick. <laughs> it's the hair, um, it's the hair and the eyes. Yeah. He wanted to make sure that they like were kind of able to be goofy and able to kind of see the film through the lens of childhood. And I think you, that translates really well in the film because there's not much of a romantic line. Like mm-hmm. a normal team, a usual team comedy would make them like, I don't know, have sex or like yeah. have some sort of, like they clearly have a crush on each other and that's kind of where it ends. It really is more about them learning how fucked up the world is mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. in a very yes. harsh way. and uh, But still kind of keeping that spirit of um, hope. They're very hopeful. It's a very hopeful film. Yeah. Yeah, and they go really far out of their way to stop this personally. Yeah. And just the, yeah, it's like, it's, it's actually very cute and charming, I think. Because it's like, yeah, they have a relationship. They might even be dating. You don't really know. Yeah, it's unclear. Yeah, but. Uh, I think they kiss in the end. I yeah. think there's a cute chaste kiss. It's also a very weird Ali Sheedy because she's being such a normal, peppy <laughs> gal. She's usually <laughs> she's the, the strange person, but she's. Uh, yeah, she's she is so charming mm-hmm. in this. Like, I know it's. I think it's her earliest role. I can't remember. It's but near, yeah, near the start. I, I just feel like if I was a casting director watching this film, and I, obviously this did happen, it would just be like, okay, this is this is the next big teen idol, like Ali Sheedy. Yeah. It's unfortunate they just gave her such crap roles after this. But yeah. hey, well, <laughs> you know. John Hughes, John Hughes came She's in. She's got some the, good ones if you dig through there. I, I, I yeah. yeah, dig deep into Ali Sheedy and you'll find some cute ones. Oh, good. Oh, I will. That's that's now on my list. And and I definitely do recommend looking any 
one look up nuclear false alarms and you will really uh it'll make you sweat because uh you know yeah. if you're feeling more you feel like you need more stress right yeah. now in this moment go, yeah go yeah but it, or also to feel good about this moment because uh yeah. yeah uh we got very close and uh and especially the computers the computer aspect really threw stuff off for a few years there and it's uh, thanks to a lot of uh I want to say Matthew Broderick types, but to their credit, they were probably <laughs> professional soldiers and not teenagers. Uh, but they saved us from uh, Armageddon, which is nice. One of the things this film really wanted to do was start a conversation, which uh, obviously it did. It influenced international policy. But the next film we had was very much intended to be in your face, uh, message movie. It was a movie of the week that people took the time off to sit down and watch. This was a thing. Think Tiger King, multiply it by a million without social media. It was directed by Nicholas Meyer, who directed and wrote a lot of the Star Trek films. Uh, It is sort of out there spacey. And it stars Steve Gutenberg, John Lithgow, Academy Award winner Jason Robards, and a plethora of just so happy to be they're Kansans. I think that's how you pronounce it. Kansians. Kansans. I'm going with Kansans. Oh, I don't know. But uh, (laughs) man, I had never heard of this one. But Mm. at the time, the day after was a huge freaking deal. Yeah, it's another one. It aired as a TV movie in America, but around the world, it was a theatrical film, partially due to what a big deal it was and how much people wanted to see it. Yeah, as you say, it, it features a cast of uh, huge stars. I mean, we're talking about Jason Robards, uh, both an Oscar winner, but after a n- recent Oscar nomination in 1981, uh, Joe Beth Williams uh, coming off of Poltergeist, Steve Gutenberg coming off of Diner, John Lithgow was already John Lithgow. <laughs> so it's this real... <laughs> John Lithgow's always been John Lithgow, yeah. yeah. But heavy hitters. And worth saying that... Uh, Nicholas Meyer coming off of Wrath of Khan, which was in the top 10 of the box office. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's this uh, procedural about regular people in Kansas, uh, mostly around Lawrence and uh, Kansas University. Um, Go Jayhawks, you know. Uh, And uh, (laughs) uh, the the effects of a nuclear bomb dropping on nearby Kansas City, Missouri. What I think I would link it to if I wanted somebody to think about what it is like is think about how recently... Uh, the film that was a relative hit, but suddenly became very prescient, uh, Contagion, Steven mm. Soderbergh's Contagion. Suddenly that movie was on the everyone's lips because people were like, oh, that movie was kind of dull, but that movie also laid out how a pandemic happens very realistically and kind of showed step by step. And the day after was attempting to do that. Um, worked really hard, Nicholas Meyer and, and the uh, screenwriter whose name is Edward Hume, uh, both worked really hard to just kind of know the effects of radiation and what would happen. Uh, but it's this very strangely put together film because it's uh, pretty, it's a little over two hours, but it was pretty much like one hour is regular people living their lives, introducing you mm-hmm. to a lot of characters. Uh, and then about an hour in uh nuclear bombs hit uh and half the characters you know are vaporized skeletonized in a very they are vaporized on screen yes Mm -hmm. on screen including like a nice family uh they are just (laughs) destroyed a woman holding a baby in her (laughs) arms just gone Uh, i I love the wedding 
two people yeah, the at the wedding. altar turning into skeletons. Um, yeah. And then from then on out, it is the, uh, there were no advertisements from then on out. And it was just like the, no commercial breaks. Yes. Uh, just the miserable reality of the survivors. Uh, you know, the living will envy the dead. Um, <laughs> and yeah. And actually, again, it, it, it touches on there's, there's some rioting. You hear a little bit about weird kangaroo courts, but it is not sensational. It is mostly about Jason mm-hmm. Robards works at a hospital and trying to make the hospital run. Uh, there is a family uh, who lives in a farmhouse and just them trying to survive. Uh, and uh, John Lithgow has a side job. He's a science professor at Kansas University, and he's just, he knows the reality of it <laughs> and mm-hmm. is on a radio uh, kind of trying to tell people the truth, but uh, also they know that they just can't tell everyone the truth because it's so miserable. Like it's, they're like, when will it be safe to go outside? And he's like, Oh, uh, never. <laughs> like, uh, it's uh yeah. So it's this very dark, dark film. Uh, and you can really see how it probably shook people to their core. Yeah. So much of it too is like, there's, there are a whole power system gets wiped out from an EMP wave. So like, I was so impressed by how they make it. I mean, Kansas is a very isolated state to begin with. Um, like a lot of these families live in rural areas, but like they have, there's no like news. There's no radio really. Like they're, they don't know if the rest of the world looks like this. They don't know if Moscow was also hit. Like that's sort of, they're all pondering like what is New York City gone? Is Paris gone? Like they, no one knows. You don't really find out till the end of the film. And that's so, so effective to not allow the viewer to have that information either. Yeah, there's an interesting thing that Nicholas Meyer actually fought uh, specifically for, and they did not have the participation of the United States government, partially because he insisted that uh, you not know who fired the first missile. He insisted that it be confusing. And a lot of this is about the tension in Germany. You hear all these radio broadcasts and stuff leading up uh, and they they tie it back to the Bay of Pigs with Jason Robards and being like, well, it didn't happen that time, so it's not going to happen, right? But yeah, you kind of know that maybe there's missiles, maybe there weren't. And we fire our mm-hmm. missiles and, and you, you follow the soldiers mm-hmm. who are dealing with the missiles who just have to like fire them and not know what to do and they don't know where to stand you, and go. It's As you like watch your hair fall out yeah. and your teeth fall out. And they do this to the actors. The makeup is quite sophisticated Ugh. and for a TV movie I think and uh you just watch gradually the effects of radiation on the body and it is this film messed me up <laughs> I thought Cujo was going to be very upsetting <laughs> in 1983 because <sighs> here's the argument I would make for this film it is a movie of the week and for people who are mm-hmm. not familiar with the concept of the movie of the week they are generally very melodramatic they're made on a tight budget they are they're just put out there they usually have a very heavy-handed message and although I will say this is not a good film it is an effective film oh, yeah. and I mm-hmm. think it's what it's intended to do it goes out and does um, and one of the things I think it that makes it so effective is that they went out and like I said earlier they hired a giant population of people from Kansas who are just everyday mm-hmm. people paid them 75 bucks a pop to shave their heads and hang out in this mm-hmm. like destroyed school gym um, and it's it's very effective because there's so mm-hmm. many people and everybody is just so into it. Uh, I love some of the reactions though of some of the people who got to be in the film who were just so happy to be there as they're just covered in debris. 
Well, it's not my most glamorous role. <laughs> I'm just really excited about it. I just think it's fun. Yeah, and it's it's very fascinating. You kind of see the scenes where they use the people, but they're super effective. I think partially because for the most part, the people are just silent. Like the whole thing is mm-hmm. just that everyone is like so shell shocked. But the I, I mean the one watching it again, the one that really affected me that I totally forgot about is one of the characters you follow is a pregnant woman who's going to give birth. And there's a scene when she's giving birth, and it's the usual birth scene. She's just screaming, and you don't know what to expect. But because the hospital is so overwhelmed with people, there's like 100 people in the room as she's giving birth just watching her. And and I think all – you can read on all their faces that they do not know what she's going to give birth to. And it's – yeah, it's like kind of hopeful, but also just like, ugh. Well, speaking of the special effects, I've heard mixed reviews on the way that the actual nuclear blast happens. I like it. Mm -hmm. I think it's all those stages and everything. Like, even if that's not necessarily what it looks like, I think as we mentioned, all those different vignettes of like, this is what's happening. These are just the stages people were in their lives. And then gone. And that's incredibly effective. And I can see, so people in New York gathered in bars to watch this. And like people were told, like, there was kind of mixed messaging on what you should do with your children because some people were like, put your children to bed early, folks. And then they put out a conversation guide in newspapers and beforehand to be like, here are some thought questions you can discuss before and afterwards. This is brilliant marketing. Yeah. This is brilliant marketing. Saying like, this is so scary that you're going to need to read a newspaper article to understand how to talk to your children about it would make me want to tune in in a second. Oh, my friend. It gets weirder than that because please, the panel please. that ABC put together oh, yeah. afterwards yes. to discuss this film for yeah. two hours, yeah. moderated by Ted frickin' Koppel. Here we go. Carl Sagan, William F. Buckley, Robert McNamara, Henry Kissinger, Brent Scowcroft, who was the National Security Advisor for President Gerald Ford, and later the National Security Advisor for President George H.W. Bush. Like, this is freaking wild that these people came together to talk about a movie of the week and like pretty significantly in this debate. I mean, Carl Sagan and William F. Buckley were notoriously anti against each other. We had a little compact before. We're going to keep it. No signs of approval or disapproval. Let's go on to the next question. Uh, The uh, the lady in the back. I don't think Dr. Sagan should be allowed to shake his head. Well, uh, let let, let Dr. Sagan shake shake his head and you can shake yours and let's get on to the next question, please. (laughs) Can you imagine that green room? Yeah. Like, I know the show. I haven't watched the actual debate, but I can't imagine what it was like when they were all those people, those men, <laughs> it, were sitting in the green room eating grapes and cubes of cheese as they prepared <laughs> to talk about well, this. Yeah, I, I, I like uh, the idea. The funny thing is, is like, well, obviously William F. Buckley is like, yes, we must show force. But uh, I think that Carl Sagan just owned him because people had just watched the movie. Like, do you think anybody's going to be like, yeah, we should have these nukes after that movie? No. Imagine a room awash in gasoline. And there are two implacable enemies in that room. One of them has 9,000 matches. The other has 7,000 matches. Each of them is concerned about who's ahead, who's stronger. Well, that's the kind of situation we are actually in. The amount of weapons that are available to the United States and the Soviet Union are so bloated, so grossly in excess of what's needed to dissuade the other, that if it weren't so tragic, it would be laughable. What is necessary is to reduce the matches 
and to clean up the gasoline. And, and I agree that that I think when you ask people who watched it, especially young people like uh, like a lot of people I know who are kind of like that right age of Gen X that kind of were watching it when they were 12, 13. Uh, they remember that blast. Mm-hmm. That's the image that sticks. And I think it is, there's a lot of artistic license for sure in that part. Uh, but it's partially because a camera couldn't capture it, right? Like mm-hmm. if a nuke went off, your camera would uh, melt. Uh, yeah. So yeah, but but that those skeletonized people. But I the interesting thing is the amount of haunting images that I think exist without it. Like I also forgot all the like, the Steve Gutenberg stuff with the mm-hmm. family uh, the like moment the, the dead animals the, oh the dead animals are bad uh, he, the, the whole thing well this was also such a cultural moment that it's I mean we love to talk on the show about how things have affected now and there was an episode of the Americans where apparently mm. they watch this and the daughter of the two Russian spies is like we're bad people mm. so that was really interesting to mm. me because I yeah I wasn't aware of this one at all but that's so interesting that the way these things that are so huge can just all of a sudden disappear and we don't really hear about them it's not as it's not as big a cultural moment anymore yeah i think tv movies especially it's very interesting and and knowing the effectiveness of this film uh Mm -hmm. like uh beyond that beyond the fact that it touched so many regular people uh this is uh, a movie that in ronald reagan's memoirs he said he watched it and it was very effective and left him greatly depressed and uh there's like there's kind of all this apocryphal stuff but uh, apparently uh, in his memoirs, traced literally like watching this movie is what led towards the disarmament in, in 1987. Like it, it literally shook him. That's incredible. It's also like one thing we haven't mentioned is this was ABC. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like for, you know, some not especially if you weren't in the U.S. necessarily like knowing what networks during the 80s specialized in like abc was what the wonderful world of walt disney and like very very family fair so i'm kind of amazed that this would have been on abc in yeah. 1983. They couldn't get advertisers for it. Yeah. So one yeah. of the reasons why it's presented on the back end as commercial free is, number one, it's very effective. They don't care about that. They want those advertising dollars. Uh, yeah. They had to sell the advertising spaces for bargain basement prices because no one would advertise on this because everyone thought it was going to be a giant disaster. Yeah, yeah, it's super weird if you watch this and the bomb goes off and then there's a jello pudding pop. <laughs> yes, yeah. I think, I think <laughs> that that's why. Weird. It's not, it's also not, like, they knew before even there weren't advertisers that there would be no commercial breaks because they knew that that would be too, Hmm. it would hurt the effectiveness. And another interesting uh, impact of this, partially because Congress really pushed for it, is in 1987 it actually aired in the Soviet Union uh, on on television. (laughs) They essentially worked, yeah, Gorbachev, uh, as a part of, like, Glasnost and Perestroika, they showed it. Um, yeah, and it's, uh, yeah, it's did, like... Did they watch it in bars like you did in Times Square? <laughs> I, I mean, to be fair, it must have been... There wasn't a lot of American TV options, so maybe they did. No. Maybe it was very yeah. exciting. Well, like I said, this is one of those films that people who watched it, even at the time, had different sort of reactions to it. I teach fourth grade at St. Anthony's in the Bronx, and I think that my children will want to discuss this tomorrow, and I want to make sure that I caught it. You could have stayed home. Well, I was out this evening, and I needed to find a place with a television, and this seemed the most appropriate. I'm at work, and I'm on my lunch break right now, but my mother's home watching a movie right now. I was bored. I thought it was a powerful movie, and I think it's going to make people more aware of the catastrophic effects, and uh, that's a lot of things to think about. I also think that there's a thing where the 
first half of the film is meant to be hyper mundane uh, mm. in a way that can make you not be so excited for the second half. I know Alicia. I was so bored. Yeah, you were. I was she, so bored. She was watching it and like, and why am I watching this? And I was like, oh, <laughs> I messaged Cam. You wait. I messaged Cam while watching. I was like, what is yeah. happening? What? 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 And you're like, just yeah. Wait, just I, wait. and then I <laughs> messaged her. I was like, oh, yeah. I knew the flip going in, but but for a new new viewer, you do kind of have to stick with it. But it really mm-hmm. pays off the mundane stuff because you mm-hmm. do come to care for a lot of these characters deeply and characters who barely show up. Like uh, when I think. of of uh, the the Asian doctor who just kind of has a lot of funny jokes about like mm-hmm. racism against him and stuff and is just kind of trying to do his job. Uh, that guy is so good. And, and mm-hmm. he's kind of, he's like the 29th character <laughs> in the film. Yeah. Uh, and it just, it's so powerful because you've sat with them for so long. Once everyone has radiation sickness and their bodies are deteriorating, I had a hard time even recognizing them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, I, it took me a while because Steven Gutenberg gets it quite badly, loses all his hair. Like, I there was like, f- like a minute where I couldn't remember who he was because it's like I'm only remembering what he looked like when he was healthy. And I thought that was really. Oh, well yeah. Done. Gutenberg looks real rough. That oh. is ha- <laughs> yeah. It is haunting. <laughs> How and I mean he was the young hunk at the time, so that's a real. Uh, I I'm gonna say I don't think I'll ever look at Steve Gutenberg the same yeah. way again. I just wonder what the appropriate venue for this is. Like, there's some movies I recommend people put on in the background of parties. Mm. You know that it's like every now and then no. people don't tune do in and be one. like, no, no. But that's what I'm like. This one is not. <laughs> okay, this, to be clear, this is this not one, one of those is movies. like maybe hold your loved ones close and. Uh, yeah, yeah in I, the definitely, of winter I definitely. In lockdown. I pet my cat a lot more voraciously after watching But I would say, <laughs> like I say, I think I think both of these films uh, are a great reminder of the hard times and the scary times that we have come through and, and maybe that the current scary times, you know, they, they're maybe not as bad or or things could be worse. And, and also I was just going to say are you saying hey Cam it could be worse. We could all be having <laughs> dying of radiation, yes. not just yeah. coronavirus. <laughs> I, I just feel like it's a thing where, uh, yeah, I, I think that it's always interesting to see what what people have come to, and also the power of movies. Like this is a yeah. very mm-hmm. interesting example of movies that really did connect with people deeply. Uh, Both and, films, things changed, right? Th- changed on like an international policy level. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. and I think changed the public perception i am sure this changed both of these films as funny and fun as war games is probably changed young people's minds to to make them so anti-nuclear mm-hmm. it made them wanted to become hackers that's what it made them do <laughs> it, it made playing chess on a computer sure super everybody sexy. wanted to be eddie deason and <laughs> yeah maury Chaykin. we forgot eddie eddie deason is in this as mm. well our our friend of the show eddie deason <laughs> oh he's so he's so lovely <laughs> such an eddie deason fan he's just such a quintessential nerd in the best possible way they probably cut a clip of him talking about the beatles out sure <laughs> probably Uh, And on that note, people can join us again, and we're going to have a really good time with our next film, um, because it's going to surprise you to find out that the writer of Basic Instinct and Showgirls and the director of Fatal Attraction and Indecent Proposal came together to make not only one of the top grossing films of the year, uh, but also one little girls have been inspired by for generations. We'll talk about that and uh, baby Michael Keaton, too. That's coming up after the break. Hey, listeners, if you're enjoying the podcast, season two of the TV show is coming out December 6th. 
And you'll be able to see episodes covering 1975, 1986, 1994, and 2000. Not only will you see the faces of Cam, Alicia, and myself, and they're good faces, very expressive, but you're also going to hear from so many more film experts and maybe even some filmmakers talking about the movies you love. And here's where it gets even better. Hollywood Suite is in free preview for the whole month of December, and you can watch both seasons of A Year in Film and great movies from the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Don't forget to watch the first season of A Year in Film now and find out how to catch the free preview while it lasts at hollywoodsuite.ca. You know that Hollywood Suite airs great content, and they've got a real treat lined up. December 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern Time on the 2000s channel is the premiere of Valley of Tears, a 10-part HBO Max original drama series. You'll be able to watch the first two episodes back-to-back, and then each subsequent episode will air weekly after that on Saturdays. Have raucous Saturday night plans? Don't worry. After the episodes air, they're going to be available on Hollywood Suite On Demand exclusively. Listeners, the trailer alone for Valley of Tears is gorgeous, which makes sense because it's Israel's highest budget TV series ever, and clearly every dollar is on that screen. It follows four soldiers caught in the crossfire of the 1973 Yom Kippur War. I'm excited to watch it, one, because I know nothing about the Yom Kippur War and would like to know more about it, and two, because when people ask me what I'm watching, I'm going to be like, oh, just this amazing HBO Max original 10-part series called Valley of Tears that's airing exclusively on Hollywood Suite in Canada. And then a conversation will be started. Check out hollywoodsuite.ca for more information and to see that awesome trailer. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. An upcoming election wasn't the only thing that was affecting people in the U.S. in 1983. In fact, after a global recession in 1979 threw the middle class in North America into general disarray through the early 80s, and let's face it, up till now, most families realized that they wouldn't be able to subsist on a single income anymore, and women re-entered the workforce once again. On top of that, after the impact of second-wave feminism, there were significantly more job options available even though working conditions and expectations were still not great. Hollywood took notice. The delightful 9 to 5 came out in 1980, a movie that played both with gender roles and the corporate workplace, and it was a massive smash and had a great soundtrack. By 1983, the studio system was primed to release stories about the new world of work and home life. 
and the gender divide between men and women. Cam, there's some banana statistics that come out of this time. You need to know in the early 80s that there's all, all kind of a, like a big, strange upheaval and, and two really different forces. Like you say, second wave feminism ha- had really, you know, hit the public consciousness. But interestingly, it had also caused a, a pretty large backlash, especially in the Reagan government. Um, one of the big kind of blows in 1982 and a part of Reagan's campaign really was, uh, kind of, it started off as full anti the equal rights amendment to the constitution. So, uh, what exactly was the equal rights amendment? Uh, it's essentially what would guarantee in the constitution that, uh, sexes are treated equally. Um, it didn't you know, work. Something... Yeah, something that you assume isn't it, <laughs> like <laughs> well, or all has men been changed. Are created equal, but, yeah, you know. mm. no. So no, uh, that uh, that was proposed, uh, and it was kind of on track, uh, but it had to be ratified by 1982. And uh, Reagan started off saying like, "No, we're against it," and then actually changed uh, to have no position. The Republican oh, official position was no position, uh, and then the deadline passed in 1982. Uh, there have been to 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 the somewhat credit uh, of people. There have been uh, few uh, amendments to the Constitution. That's it's a very hard thing to do. Uh, and also, he believed that the Fourteenth Amendment, which I don't know off the top of my head, covered sexual equality. That was their argument: was that you did not need to amend the existing uh, Constitution. But essentially, it's like kind of the start of women. Uh, being treated by the government as a special interest group, um, kind of that women, what women want is like a little beyond the pale. Um, but on the other hand, an interesting thing throughout the 70s uh, was the start of no-fault divorce, mm. uh, which kind of changed the institution of marriage. A lot of people see that it changed marriage from, uh, and it was across classes, uh, anyone, it kind of was this big boom in divorce um, and it, it changed marriage from something that was very much for the family unit, like a traditional family, to now uh, be what they call the soulmate model of married mm. life, that you are trying to find a partner who you love and who you get along with. Um, so you are not staying with your partner to preserve the family. And actually, divorces peaked in 1981. It's the, I believe... The highest divorce rate ever in American history um, <laughs> until 2020 or 2021. Yeah, exactly. yeah, we shall see. Yeah. Um, but it's like uh, I think it's about five or six divorces per thousand people in the, in the United States. Um, so yeah, it, it kind of created this interesting tension because now women were much uh, like were so deeply ingrained in the workforce, and I think that there's also this feeling that you see in a lot of these films that. Women who were empowered uh, by the feminist movement in the 60s and 70s uh, were a little angry, (laughs) frankly, that uh, what the goal they were striving for, the basics, were not fulfilled. There's a great documentary I I always recommend to people when they want to know about uh, second wave feminism and not just white feminism. They've got great stuff on queer feminism as well as black feminism uh, called She's Beautiful When She's Angry. That's just a few years old. It's fantastic if you want to know more about that era. Cool. Yeah. And I I think the recent uh, Mrs. America Mm -hmm series is about kind of this era um but yeah so there is just a a big divide Uh, and it was also the first time that uh they saw 
women and men voting very differently. <laughs> Not surprisingly, in that first Reagan election, uh, most women voted against him, uh, and the majority of his voters were male. Uh, so, and, and also, they knew could tell the divide was in husbands and wives. So, specific tension in uh, marriages and relationships, which uh, might just come up in some of these movies. <laughs> <laughs> when we talk about this kind of gender divide, I mean, a lot of it we're talking about women entering the workforce, but a lot of men were getting laid off because this mm-hmm. was also like the decline of the Rust Belt, and we were mm-hmm. seeing all these jobs getting shipped overseas. Huge recession. Exactly. Yeah. And um, a lot of women, because there were positions now, were able to take positions in, that were higher paid so that their husbands could work and build other types of careers. And one of those people was famous filmmaker, writer John Hughes. In the late 70s, he quit his day job as an ad man to become a writer at National Lampoon, like everybody wanted to do in the 70s, and he was getting paid pennies a word. So his wife had to go to work, and he stayed home with the kids. And uh, at the time, he wrote this little article for National Lampoon about how horrific it was to be a house husband and how bad he was at it. Um, And this was seen by producer Lauren Schuler Donner, who at the time was this like baby associate producer. She'd done a couple films. She would later go on to be a mega producer, producing a ton of the X-Men films that you know. Um, She's she's like one of those names. Um, But she was looking for something to cut her teeth on. And so she got uh, in touch with John Hughes, and they started to write a script together. This was one of two movies that were penned by John Hughes in 1983. The first was National Lampoon's Vacation, and we all know how that turned out. And the second was Mr. Mom. Uh, I will say that he also uh, added jokes to a much forgotten uh, pirate movie called Nate and Hayes, which was part of the uh, Indiana Jones. What's it called? Nate and Hayes. It stars uh, Tommy Lee Jones. Uh, it's part of the kind of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, ripoffs of the era, uh, along uh, with stuff like The High Road to China, uh, which uh, all these movies Jones. everyone forgets. Uh, but you can tell that they kind of brought John Hughes on just to, to add some jokes <laughs> to make it a bit more Indiana Jones. Yeah, I think it was probably a pretty classic swashbuckler. But anyway, I digress. Uh, Mr. Mom, uh, as you say, is a story about a man who is uh, laid off. Uh, from work and uh, Michael Keaton and he uh, his wife played by the lovely Terry Gar is uh, chooses to take a job while he is looking for something new and uh, things go wacky as you may expect they have they have three children yes. and they're like really really young really, like, that's really the thing young, that's yeah. great about that role for Terry Gar is like one of them is like can't walk yeah one of them's a a full-on baby basically yeah uh and uh yeah it's it's i will say like before we uh get too deep into it it's not quite the movie you may think it is a lot of it is about how hard uh raising kids are and how he like admires uh Terry Gar for what she does and a lot of it is actually not about uh Terry Gar being super like uh, she liked being a mom uh there's Mm -hmm. there's nothing about like you know I think she's quite good at being a businesswoman. It's not a wacky thing about how she's bad at it. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's, it's not kind a of freaky a freaky Friday sort of like no, your life is no. so hard. Your life yeah. is so hard. That's not how yeah, it works. Yeah, it's weirdly that she's just good at everything. <laughs> she's yeah. good at being a businesswoman. She's good at being a mom. She enjoys being well, a because businesswoman. she can multitask yeah. and she like all the things you yeah. have to it's do a, when you're a mom actually apply very well to the business. And world. that's such a thing that I think a lot of stuff is exploring is like how you can't write off housewives because they are you know handling the finances. They're multitasking. Mm-hmm. They're organizing a whole household and groceries Emotional and labor. Exactly. Yeah. Interestingly, it's also never about him getting good at it. No. He, he, oh, he, sucks. he kind he sucks of learns to 
cope, but it also just destroys him <laughs> top to bottom, which That's is interesting. The, he's never good at anything. He's bad at his job right off the bat, even before he gets laid off for no reason. And then he mm-hmm. immediately goes into being bad at being a house husband. Yeah, well, like on, on the factory floor, there's some workers that, you know, he's obviously their boss and he's trying to talk to them. They're very concerned about they've heard that they're going to lose their jobs. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to give them this pep talk, and it's the most empty, <laughs> vacuous, and they call him yes. on it. And to me, it was a great transition to when he's at home because his kids need that kind of emotional support, and his kids need that kind of, you know, cognitive support, and he it's just empty in the beginning. He doesn't actually have... Everything he says is just, like, fake. It's just, like, catchphrases or metaphors that don't actually work. <laughs> and I think that translating that to home life is so interesting. And the, op- and the flip side is Terry Gard is very good at actually talking to people and she's is the head of like an advertising uh, firm and like she's very good at selling things because she has that emotional ability to connect which he does not he also gave a baby chili (laughs) which you are this is the pinnacle of the film where like a lot of things are happening the vacuum's going to explode the vacuum is like kind of a a shark like a jaws metaphor in the film Uh, and all everything's breaking and then he has to feed the kid and the kid like this really little kid and one of those things we had when we were little in the 80s where you're like trapped in a cage it but you're the little walker thing yeah yeah Yeah, like a walker kind of like flintstones i don't think they have them anymore but um no they're death traps if you have stairs (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah, exactly the baby eats like a can of yeah i was gonna say to his credit he does not give the baby chili he merely (laughs) ignores the baby until it finds chili encounters chili (laughs) and i think there's a repair woman uh or maybe i can't remember she's like you can't give a baby chili and then more gender roles right because you have this this repair woman who's like she grumbles everything in one lines and yeah yeah, yeah. And and just the explosiveness of that chili scene, oh, yeah. I think we can all relate to. It's pretty, uh, pretty wonderful. Yeah, there's an interesting thing. I mean, this movie, you, it, we, we, well, we've all dug into it, and it's a little hard to tell. It doesn't quite feel like a John Hughes movie. And partially, mm-hmm. Lauren Schuler seems to imply it was under development at Universal for a brief time, and they brought in a TV writer's room to punch mm-hmm. it up. It was and, then and sh- developed to be a TV movie. That's where Aaron yes. Spelling got involved yeah. as a producer. Yes. Oh, I wondered so about that. So it kind of yeah. goes back and forth, but uh, it sounds like this script that we get has a bit of that wackier uh, stuff, and I think that that's a lot of the parody stuff you see. You have to keep in mind that, uh, as we learned from other movies, that Airplane was kind of the big uh, mm-hmm. comedy influence at the time. So you have a lot of this over-the-top, crazy, wacky uh, stuff. It's very slapstick. Yeah. It's, it's really actually a great example, I think, of how silent film slapstick gets translated uh, into comedy in in the 1980s. Like, I, I do like it for that. But we do also have to talk about its star, which is one of the reasons why I think you're you're meant to relate to this person who is basically a failure and, like, them sort of <laughs> failing up is because he's played by likable everyman Michael Keaton in mm-hmm. one of his earliest mm-hmm. roles. And weirdly, he got this role after a bunch of people had seen the, sh- the movie Night Shift, mm-hmm. uh, which I mm-hmm. have never mm-hmm. seen, which is apparently about, oh, like, a, a morgue that turns into a brothel that also yes. stars Henry Winkler. Yeah. A wonderful, a yeah. wonderful film. Uh, it's very funny. Very good cut. Shelley Long. Uh, and it was a big hit. And and Michael Keaton is especially just the breakout star. But even in 1983, you got to do press. And I think it's kind of amazing that he became the superstar he was with his attitude to publicity, which you can totally hear in this interview for Mr. Mom on a press junket uh, by famed interviewer Bobby Wygant. I first knew about you in Night Shift. That's Mm -hmm. where I really first got acquainted with you. And I just thought, 
as, along with a lot of other critics, that you just walked away with the show, that you just stole it. Then when we went out to Los Angeles to do some press with Winkler and Ron Howard and so forth, no Michael Keaton, and we were all so disappointed. We said, mm -hmm. where is Michael Keaton? Where was Michael Keaton? I just, uh, when you were doing that, I think I was in Ireland or I was in France. I was out of there, a blue town. I just didn't want to be around. Also, I just got married, so they asked me to kind of delay it, uh, the honeymoon. I said, nah, <laughs> and I left. Kind of rude, I guess, but... And yet he signed on for that. <laughs> Doesn't like publicity, signs in for the largest comic book adaptation up to that point. Yeah, like he brings this like anchoring sort of presence. And then you add Martin Mull, who is one of the driest comedic voices in the world. And then you see the two of them play off each other. So you have like the manic wide-eyed energy of Michael Keaton. And they'll like super dry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just like a very rich kind of pompous asshat uh, mm -hmm. with Martin Mull. And the two, the sparks just fly. And it's it's funny. Like it's it's great. Yeah, there's a lot of, uh, really uh, fun comedic character actors that bolster stuff. You've got like Christopher Lloyd, Jeffrey Tambor, Anne Jillian, who's the kind of uh, sultry uh, other lady who's trying to get him to cheat on uh, his yes, wife with her. Um, yeah, because so, it's funny that like they actually, the interesting thing is I think that this movie could have not gone as in depth as it does. It it uh, mm -hmm. it takes a lot of time to really show how their lives change with all the different business people, and then he falls in with all the moms, and he kind mm -hmm. of dads up the mom time with poker games and and having a little dad fun. There's a male stripper scene in this. Okay, yeah. film. I was just gonna yeah. say it. Sure. Thank yeah, you. Thank that you. we have we have to talk about it because uh, apparently Cam, you told us that this is not the only space themed yeah, male stripper scene you, in 1983. An astronaut stripper, which interestingly is a deep plot point in the film A Night in Heaven, uh, which is a film I, I I don't know whether or not I recommend, but it's about a male stripper <laughs> who seduces it. his college professor, um, and but his whole act is being a, an astronaut. So I'm fascinated to know if they it's the same studio and they had the set or what, because why oh or or like is in the pre Challenger era was astronaut the sexiest oh. job you could have. Oh. I don't know. Is that is that what killed the astronauts? Oh, Stripping? I don't know. I don't know. But uh, no. yeah, it's very fu funny. And and again, like a charming Michael Keaton moment because in, in the era where you know this kind of thing, probably a manly man would not love this. Michael Keaton really gets into it at the male strip yeah. club, and he he gets the stripper's number. I think. Yeah. Is the joke? It's never it's never treated with homophobia. No. Like that, I found that very surprising, especially for John Hughes, um, that there isn't that moment of homophobia. And I really love that. Scene seen as like a time capsule of like 1983 culture because like it's kind of modeled on like a Chippendales sort of venue and like Chippendales exists now as sort of a, a Las Vegas review but in the late 70s and early 80s I think it was established in 1979 like this was a huge legitimate form of entertainment for women mm -hmm. was going to Chippendales and it wasn't just for like bachelorette parties it really was for like lying to your husband saying you're going to bridge but you're actually going to the Chippendales bar and I just I love it I always think I was thinking while watching it um, of that SNL skit with Patrick Swayze and Chris Farley oh, yeah. when they're trying yeah. out for Chippendales it's <laughs> kind of that it's sort of that vibe in Mr. Mom it kind of made me want to go to something like that like I, I've been to a few male strip clubs and they don't they don't really feel like that anymore. well I can only recommend A Night in Heaven <laughs> okay yeah maybe I'll just do that 1983 instead. strip club film well it's also a scene that is not shot homophobically do you know no. what I mean like no. it's yeah. shot yeah the gaze is different it's funny yeah. that he's there 
But uh, yeah, it's an interesting director, actually, Stan Dragotti. This was, they proposed it be uh, John Hughes's directorial debut, but he wasn't into mm. it. Um, well, they'd also think, changed the script so many times yeah, at that point. Yeah, so I wonder really if that is. changed script is what threw him off. But Stan Dragotti mm-hmm. is actually a guy who, interestingly, like he's a, it's a director you've probably not heard of, but he did uh, Mr. Mom and The Man with One Red Shoe with Tom Hanks, and he did She's oh, Out yeah. of Control. So interestingly, his last film is Necessary Roughness in 1991. Mm-hmm. Um, so he kind of had this very big, he also did Love at First Bite. Uh, like he had this mm-hmm. real, real big boom and, and was a pretty significant director of the 1980s in the comedy scene. But I mean, most of these comedies are not exactly respected. I, but Mr. Mom, you know, it's in the top 10 grocers at the box office, even though it's a movie that we don't really look at anymore. But that having been yeah. said, does this hold up? Like when you guys were watching this at any point where you were like, but hmm. or was were you like no 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 I can see relevancy here I think I'm neutral on it yeah. I, I would never point to this film as like this is a really interesting sort of gender look at gender like it, it's got it's pretty you could just read a Time magazine article from 1983 and get the same gist it's not nuanced no it's not nuanced it's not complex what it is is kind of lighthearted it's funny and the performances from Michael Keaton and Terry Garr um, are wonderful. And I, I think watching this, you understand why Michael Keaton became a superstar in the 80s. Terry Gar was already a star by this point, but I watching it, I'm just more reinforced with why everyone should, if they don't already love Terry Gar. She's very underappreciated in, in my perspective. Um, as She's always a side character. In this, she gets to be more kind of front and center. Again, neutral. I'm neutral in it. Yeah. It's worth watching. If it's on, if it's on TV, I would say tune in. It's, it's actually really fun to watch probably with your family. Like it's a safe film to watch with your family. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily desperately seek it out. Totally. I, I will desperately seek out this strip <laughs> No, I, I actually about. would say that Mr. Mom might be a skosh better than A Night in Heaven. Oh, no. But uh, other than the stripping, which is all Night in Heaven's about. But um, yeah, I, I think the thing to note is like it's it's gender politics, I think, hold up a lot better than you might assume a film mm-hmm. from 1983. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I agree. And weirdly, I, I agree with you, Alicia, that I think it's all, it's almost works better as a kid's movie. Like the wackier mm-hmm. over the top stuff will probably make a kid laugh, even a modern yeah. kid. Uh, I think the moment for me that one, I laughed the hardest and two, I thought was the most progressive is, as I mentioned, Michael Keaton and Martin Mull have this like masculinity fight going on as like the boss and the mm-hmm. house husband. Um, and so he has to participate in this like corporate race where they like they have to run in flippers. It's like an obstacle yeah, course. And it's, it, number one, it's very, very funny to watch Michael Keaton try to run in flippers because um, he's such a great comedic uh, physical actor. Um, but he's led to understand that like he's supposed to lose this and Martin Mull wins every single year. Like that's part of it. And mm-hmm. his wife's job may or may not depend on him losing. And even though his masculinity is our perceived masculinity is on the line, he loses on purpose. He throws the race mm-hmm. in order to save Terry Gar. And I'm like, oh, that's huge. Like, what a great message. You know, make those sacrifices for your partner if your own ego's on the line, right? Well, and not to be negative, but also to save their only livelihood. Yeah. yeah. Like, he, it's not just like, well, I'm, I'm going to let my wife have one this time. <laughs> I think part of it is that, like, if she did get fired, and keep in mind her boss, Martin Mull, is sexually harassing mm-hmm. her. Yeah. Um, it, it escalates throughout the yeah. film, um, coming back to like nine to five and films like Working Girl. You know, they will lose everything. Like they have this big house. And like, so it's it's one of the first moments where you realize like he really is indebted to her because he, it seems very unlikely that he is going to find another job because he really does suck coming back to how we described mm-hmm. him earlier in, in, in the podcast. 
This was a movie about what was going on in the boardrooms and the suburbs of America. But what about the hopes and aspirations of a young woman on the gritty streets of Pittsburgh? Passionate young women who are 18 years old had the fortitude and drive to become a professional licensed welder in a very unionized uh, industry and an extremely accomplished modern jazz dancer in a dive bar. And yet she longs to join the ranks of professional corps de ballet. That's right. It's Flashdance, possibly one of the most referenced, homaged movies from the 80s. Uh, but when you think about Flashdance, what comes to mind? What do you actually remember? The jaw-dropping water dance number? Uh, the creative removal of an undergarment from under a sweatshirt? The horrifying dysfunctional relationship at its romantic core? Because let me tell you, that's a big part of it. Alicia, you have similar feelings as I do to Flashdance. Do you mean in that we absolutely despise Not it? Not big fans. <laughs> Not big yeah, fans. Yeah, we are, we're on the same page. Um, I would actually question, and I'm curious, you know, for listeners of this, how many people have actually sat down relatively recently and watched it from start to finish? Because I think it's one of those films from the 1980s that is so ubiquitous and so iconic and, you know, has been replicated in so many, you know, whether it's, you know, Simpsons or animation or children's films. Who's actually watching... Flashdance anymore because I was shocked when sitting down and watching it and realizing how sloppy, how um, poorly directed, how poorly acted, except for Jennifer, Jennifer Beals is quite good, yeah. how poorly written. Like every kind of angle that you could discuss this film is a bit of a crapshoot. Well, even the director, Adrian Lyons, talked about how he wasn't even sure he wanted to make the movie. I just didn't like the story. I thought it was kind of dumb. I, I, I... I wasn't crazy about it. And, and, and I turned it down a, a couple of times, maybe three. And yet it's, you know, it's a huge success for the studio um, in 1983, a huge success at the box office um, and, you know, really made a ton of money and then went on to so much fame. Why? Like, that's my question. <laughs> is, is it just because the costumes are so iconic and they were kind of revolutionary? Is it the dancing scenes, which I think are quite well done? Why is this film so arresting? I, I don't actually know. I think there's two reasons for that. I think, number one, it is the dancing. The dancing in this is absolutely yes, unbelievable. It and is, yeah. also going back to the fact MTV and music videos, these are all mini, mini music videos that would then go on to influence music yeah. videos um, made by a commercial film director who, uh, Cam, you pointed us towards a fantastic denim commercial he did um, <laughs> in the late 70s, early 80s, I believe. Yeah, it's a whole... Series called for Brutus Jeans in the United Kingdom. Brutus uh, Jeans. And it, they were so famous that the Brutus Jeans jingle was like a high selling single. It's a, a wonderful little song. I pull Brutus Jeans on. I pull my Brutus Jeans on. I think the other reason is, is it's a story of inspiration or it's masquerading as a story of inspiration of like, just follow your sure. dreams. Yeah. And you can do it even though, number one, you don't actually find out if she gets into the school. It's just she does the audition good for her. Mm. Um, yeah. And, which it's weird. A lot of people put on that she gets in and I'm like, no, no, no. She just does the audition. Yeah. I think even the Jennifer Lopez homage music video to this ends with her getting into the school, whereas mm. that didn't actually happen. Uh, just a little side trivia, Jennifer Lopez and Sony Music got sued because oh, they yeah. did they, oh, they yeah. veered way too close to what it actually was. It yeah. wasn't an homage. It was a thing. But we need to talk about like the cultural relevance of this because uh, Alicia, you've gone down a rabbit hole. Yeah, well, one, one might even say it's a beagle hole. Um <laughs> I, in researching Flashdance and trying to figure out like why this is, you know, so popular, 
I stumbled across 1984's Flash Beagle, Charlie Brown. It's actually called It's Flash Beagle, Charlie Brown, which was the Snoopy, Charlie Brown, Peanuts universe answer to not just Flashdance, like obviously Flashdance is referenced in the title, but it's kind of mixes in Saturday Night Fever a little bit and sort of Jane Fonda workout tapes. So it's a really central, like, like what what was happening with dance and aerobics in the early 1980s. Um, Snoopy fully wears the flash dance like costume. He's got the sweatband and like a ripped sweatshirt. And Charlie Brown's like one black friend, Franklin, takes him to the club <laughs> and he like learns to sort of break dance. And I love this film. It's 24 minutes. <laughs> it's, film. it's completely fun. <laughs> to be friends with Alicia <laughs> Fletcher means you get these beautiful emails of like, yeah. I found this, I found this. Yeah. It's it's the best. It's so great. <laughs> what's what's interesting about this, um, okay, I'll, I guess it's like a TV special. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm calling it a film. Okay. Uh, <laughs> First of all, it's the debut of Fergie from the Black Eyed Peas because she's the voice of Sally. Uh, And also, and we're going to talk about this a a lot more in a second, uh, it's the only film that actually credits the actual dancer who did all the flash dance dances, because I'm sure we all know this, but for those of you who don't, Jennifer Beals did not perform the dance sequences in flash dance, and it was an uncredited French dancer named Marine Jahan. Her one credit that she does get eventually is in Flash Beagle because they hire her and then rotoscope her dance moves into the film, which I think is so fascinating. So she's credited in Flash Beagle, but not credited in Flashdance, which if we're talking about why Flashdance is so iconic, and if I think, Becky, I'm in complete agreement with you. It is the dance and the choreography. Well, guess what? That's not... That's not Jennifer Peels. It's this woman, Maureen Jahan, who was kind of told that she wasn't allowed to really talk about it, which I think is So awful. here's my question for you guys. I think the main failing of this film is the script. Sure. There's no script. I don't think, I don't even know if there was a script. It's, like, it's, it's insane. It's pretty, it's pretty rough. Um, but I think that Hollywood has such a history of doing those kinds of tricks that as long as you are enjoying the film and as long as those tricks are sleight mm-hmm. of hand enough, you don't really care. The real tragedy comes in the people who have done these incredible performances not getting the credit where they're due. And I think Hollywood has this weird assumption that, like, the illusion will be broken if you don't think this person will do it. I mean, The Exorcist, notoriously, there's three different people playing mm-hmm. Reagan, but mm-hmm. only Linda Blair got the credit for that. I mean, if you do close-ups on, you don't even have to do close-ups on Flashdance. Like, just knowing it's not Jennifer Beals, you can see every cut. It's so incredibly transparent to me that it's not her dancing. One like, more yeah. moment. Like it's a breakdancer who is also in the breakdancing scene. Who's a man yeah. named Crazy, Crazy Legs. Legs. Yeah. Crazy and he has a mustache. Wearing, um, yeah. <laughs> he refused to shave his mustache. mustache. He refused, I will say. <laughs> they wanted him to. Uh, but I think I think you guys are missing, I'll, I'll be crass here, People like this movie because it's sexy, you guys. I mean, this is, is, yeah, yeah. I mean, think of her sloppily eating that lobster. Like, uh, oh my God, Cam, that will turn me off lobster for the rest of my life. And I like lobster. I mean, like, it's, but it's like, I think for me, I mean, you talked about the MTV of it all. Partially why it's popular is because they were able to immediately edit it into music videos, which played on MTV, which pushed it. uh, It's an interesting movie where it came out on VHS while it was still in theaters and the VHS actually sent people to theaters more. Wild. Huh. Paramount was totally shocked. But yeah, I think it's I think it's just like a, lo- a large part of it is the sexiness. And, and I mean, it's written by 
weirdly, I think I give a lot of the credit for the female empowerment story to Joe Esterhouse, as gross as Joe Esterhouse is. But uh, he's famous feminist. Yeah. <laughs> I, would, I would never call him a feminist, but he is interested in women's stories, weirdly. <laughs> By like, which we mean showgirls, basic instinct, yeah. sliver. Like, but I yeah. mean, it's it's almost all female-led movies, you know? And this movie mm-hmm. seems like it's it's two different writers. And we know Esther House is the writer towards the end. And weirdly, the movie starts off from the point of view of the man. Um, but then it kind of goes off the rails and is a Jennifer Beale story, which it should be and is the more interesting story because the guy has like no story. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I think I credit that weirdly to Joe Esther House, partially to just gaze at Jennifer Beals, who is beautiful. There's an, a possibly apocryphal story when they were looking at the casting, because apparently they saw 3,000 people for this. Um, they had it narrowed down to three people, one of them Jennifer Beals, one of them Demi Moore, and one of them an actress who didn't go anywhere. And they notoriously went around to different producers on the lot and asked them who they would mm-hmm. rather sleep with. That's not the term they mm-hmm. used. And most people picked Jennifer Beals, and that's why she got the job. Mm-hmm. Hopefully apocryphal, but somehow yeah, I Yeah, there's different... Uh, I kind of Different it. people say different things, because uh, some people do say that they, like, took all the women on the lot and said, who who do you like the best? Yeah, uh, yeah, th- that's the one they tell the little girls who like this movie. <laughs> yes. But yeah, I don't know. It, it's, it's interesting. And I do think that there's like a certain Jennifer Beals is a very serious actress. She's somebody who she she took a deference at Yale to do this movie. And she actually She's... did not grab the the fame from it. She decided to go back to Yale and didn't really start her career till 1987. I think she hated this film. Yeah. No, she's, she's very, a very interesting person. So I think she saw something in it, uh, in spite of whatever. I also think that, uh, like like we say, it's very MTV, but it's also the first film of Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer, who are kind of mm-hmm. kings of the 80s. If you don't know uh, Don Simpson, it's a tragic story because he died essentially of his drug use, but he's also just the cocaine 80s guy. <laughs> like he is the king of being a coked out 80s guy. And he actually got to make this film partially because he was the head of develop or he's the VP of development, I believe, at Paramount. Uh, and in 1982, he passed out from drug use in a meeting and they fired him and part of his exit package. A lot of people think as a dummy uh, kind of screw you was the rights to Flashdance uh, because they thought it was such a dud that it would ruin his career. Uh, well, he won that. Yeah, he, he absolutely won that because he knew what to do. And he teamed up with Jerry Bruckheimer and they both knew this kind of rock style that adrian lynn was known for in his advertisements uh and they knew to do this kind of music video thing so yeah it's very interesting because i I think that these guys i I think as much i can agree that the plot of this is atrocious i mean there's like it's about a couple that falls apart and then the reconciliation is literally a montage at the end which has no dialogue and you have no idea relationship that's toxic and predatory to begin with like yeah it's creepy yeah it's weird and i mean they they even address it (laughs) credit again to joe esterhouse they're like why are you dating this child but there's something to the visual filmmaking i think it's 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 very forward thinking um it's very yeah it's very beautiful we should say that the this movie was critically panned in its day. Uh, it has about mm-hmm. 35% on Rotten Tomatoes. In spite of its massive commercial success, people did think it sucks. I point people, like you point people to Flash Beagle, I point people to uh, Mad Magazine's Flash Dunce. <laughs> and you see uh, you see how quickly all these things we're talking about were talked about. That How quickly everyone's like, it's not her dancing. Uh, this is a weird ripoff. There's no plot. It's 
makes no sense. I mean, it was Razzie nominated in its day as it's an Oscar winner mm-hmm. and Razzie nominee. But yeah, it's it's super influential from a technical point of view, I think. And if you can just step back to just the physical filmmaking, there's a lot going on. And I think because it's the first Bruckheimer Simpson production, it predicts so much of Top Gun and and all of the mm-hmm. like Tony Scott of it all, all this kind of... Uh, beautiful crazy visuals paired with music well speaking of those beautiful crazy visuals if we're talking about people who didn't get credit there's a whole other like side story beyond Maureen Jahan the dancer with you know that screenwriter you're talking about Cam Mm. Joe Osterhouse comes in late it's actually Tom Headley who was a Canadian it's Tom Headley's um I'm not sure if he was Canadian or he lived in Toronto for a really long time he worked in Canadian film so I I assume he is as well and he was the editor of Toronto Life. Mm-hmm. So I, I think perhaps he was born in the U.S., but I'm not sure. Someone someone will look that up for me. Tom Headley, this was his whole concept. So he's the one that sold the idea and the screenplay eventually to Paramount. The way he got his idea was by going to a very famous um, kind of avant-garde strip club in Toronto called Gimlet's, where a lot of the dancers, it was more burlesque than strip, and a lot of the dancers were kind of encouraged to do sort of feminist performance art. And he hired his Toronto Life photographer. He hires that photographer to take photos of some of the dancers from Gimlet's. And it's interesting because the photos are exactly what you see in Flashdance. Like that kabuki scene where Jennifer Beals has painted her face entirely white and is wearing that very tight red dress. That was completely inspired by two Gimlet's dancers. One, the first name is Gina Healy, and the other one's Maureen Martyr. And a lot of those acts with the water, with pulling the chain, all of that was was performed at Gimlet's. And when he sold it to Paramount, he had these two um, dancers sign their life rights away for $2,300 each, which sure was probably a lot of money in Toronto in 1982 or 83, but is nothing compared to what the massive hit and and box office bank flash dance achieved. And it's actually created a number of lawsuits even recently as um, both of them have claimed that this was done disingenuously. And within the contract, they were never allowed to say that they had any involvement in flash dance whatsoever. And he denies all of it, which is so ridiculous because in the very end, before they were starting to shoot, he brought Joe Esterhouse, Jerry Bruckheimer, and Don Simpson to Gimlet's to watch the performances and take notes. And I find this disgusting. I think partially knowing the story, and there's a really kind of infamous BuzzFeed article that came out maybe five years ago about it, um, maybe knowing that really kind of tainted flash dance for me because it makes me very angry sure. unfortunately they had lawyers present when they signed the the waivers so in the end the lawsuits were all lost um actually one of the performers maureen mortar uh, actually went to go sue sony and jennifer lopez yeah. as a roundabout way of getting a claim back on flash dance unfortunately that lawsuit was lost but every judge who's kind of ruled on this has been like we have to rule against you. However, mm. we are acknowledging that this was absolutely disgusting yeah. what Paramount and and uh, Tom Headley did. I mean, Tom Flashdance is a big musical, too, like just a few years ago, and he still refuses to acknowledge the role of these two women. If you're signing your life rights away, kids, make sure that you have an entertainment lawyer, not just a regular lawyer, because they know what they're talking about. Yeah. There's your lesson for today. Yeah. If you take nothing always, else from Flashdance, have an entertainment yeah. lawyer. And always get a percentage. 
Yeah. <laughs> is my yeah, on the back end. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like Tom Hadley signed on for I think his screenplay sold for two hundred fifty or three hundred fifty thousand dollars, and then he wanted five percent of the box office, which five percent of what Flashdance has made over the last thirty-seven years is enormous. And like the idea of twenty three hundred dollars, I just have that like stuck in my head because it's like sure. you could barely pay rent with that today. Yeah. Don't don't. I would say, hey kids, if you're going to sign away your life rights, never sign for less than two hundred fifty. Yes. that's sure. like the bare minimum. Go up from there. Get a producer's credit. Get a percentage. Yes. yes. Tom Headley, by the way, UK. Oh, okay, okay, thank you. I, I figured. Yet he never actually paid the photographer. The photographer is still <laughs> a working photographer. You can go on his oh, website. Geez. I'm trying to look at my notes. What I have his name. Once, what is the name of the photographer? No, Myron, Myron, and Shirley Zabel. They were a married couple. Shirley did all the costuming and a lot of the production design for this photo shoot that was then ripped off for Flashdance. And then you know they're Myron's photographs. And not only did Tom Hadley not pay him, he didn't return the slides. So I know, and he's now a very respected photographer. Um, I think still in Toronto, and he, he's taught at Ryerson and Humber. But it's just like every everyone that should have been credited and given some who are very marginal, marginalized like people because they're either artists or, you know, dancers or whatever, or, you know, worked in um, a strip club. Like no one got credit for this. And it makes me really angry. Understandably. I mean, that's kind of what Hollywood does in general with a lot of things. I think it's happening less and less with the Internet because it's easier to be like, oh, yeah, that was from here. This was here. And there is, I think there's more savvy on usage. Um, I mean, the arguments about copyright Mm -hmm. usage can just keep going. But I think you're going to be seeing this happen optimistically. I think you're going to be seeing this happen less just because the Internet is so omnipresent and you can point to things. The problem that I think, I mean, that's just such an obvious case. The problem I think where you get into it is like you're influenced by something that you genuinely forgot about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. And obviously when these two women signed away their life rights, they had no idea what they were actually signing. They really thought they didn't realize, you know, and, and, and they didn't realize that this was going to be so prevalent in the film. They thought, especially for Marine Martyr, who is the one who was a construction worker. So it's not just that the dancing or the stripping and the the kind of, you know, production value of their acts was used. It really is for Maureen, like this idea of she wanted to go to dance school. She was making money at Gimlet's at night while also doing, um, I think she was also a professional welder, doing construction during the day in Hamilton at Stelco. So it's just like, oh, God. <laughs> like, there's sort of an element of like, and this is, you know, a phrase I don't love, but the stripper with the heart of gold. You know, that kind of like thing. And I think that's also what just turns me off right away, even more so than that disgusting sucking on shellfish while she has her foot in his crotch under the table while wearing a sleeveless tuxedo for some inexplicable reason. I I will never be able to enjoy lobster ever again because of flash dance. I think that is the perfect way to end this episode, Alicia. <laughs> You've done such a beautiful job uh, summing that up. I want to thank you both once again for being here. I had such a great time with this episode. Cameron Maitland, thank you so much. Thank you, Becky. Alicia Fletcher, thank you very much. Thank you. Please, please, listeners, you can watch Flash Beagle <laughs> on Daily Motion. It's in a very good quality file. Um, it's there as of right now. I don't know how long it will last, but do yourself a favor. It's, it's quite adorable. It's really delightful. You know how, like, I love to watch them do the holiday Christmas special where they do the dancing? Yes. They do that same kind yeah. of dancing, but in a discotheque. It's delightful. Yeah. It's wonderful. <laughs> okay, so. Thanks, Becky. <laughs> 
it's it's such a pleasure, Lisa. So thank you, listeners, for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast. You can join us again in two weeks as we look back at a movie that found David Bowie on the George Washington Bridge nightly, screaming every punk song he knew to make his character more authentic. That's coming up in two weeks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Want to chat with us and find more great content? Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. The home of the movies that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen. Uncut and commercial-free on four HD channels and on demand. Learn how you can subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cam Maitland. Supervising producer is Ryan Maines. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Creative consultant is Emily Gagné. Audio engineering by Kevin Lipset. Until next time. Give me a quarter pound of cheese. American blue cream cottage gouda Edam, provolone romano swiss you have your entire cheddar family Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.